Please turn with me in your Bibles to the the First John, to the letter of First John. That's page one thousand three hundred five. We'll read chapter five, verses twenty and twenty-one. Two chapters from First John. You don't need to turn there. I will be reading Exodus twenty-one to three on the first commandment, but just turn to First John, as well as to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day thirty-four can be found in your forms and prayers book on page 240 and following. Before we read, let's ask God's blessing. Lord, in this dialogue of worship, as we have come into your presence and have prayed and sung to you as you have spoken to us in your word, we again anticipate and know that you speak to us here in this message. We pray that what would be said this evening would be right and true, the right interpretation of your word as well as the right application to our hearts and lives. And Father, that you would be praised in it and glorified. We ask this in your name. Amen. Before reading the text from 1 John, I'm just going to read the first three verses of Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And now we turn to 1 John, where we see that commandment in a sense given again. 1 John 5, 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Just a brief explanation there. In light of verse 20, you can almost... Insert that understanding in light of verse 20 and in light of who Jesus is as the true Son of God himself, as the true God and eternal life. In light of that, then verse 20, little children, keep yourselves from idols. There's the commands in God's word clearly given to us, commands to refrain from idolatry, to have no other gods before the one true God. And now we turn our attention towards day 34, giving an explanation from scriptures, from references to scripture and what scripture teaches on God's will in this first commandment. We will not be reading question and answer 92. We read the law this morning. So we will pick up our reading in Lord's day 34 at question and answer 93. Of the law, it asks this question, how are these commandments divided? Into two tables, the first has four commandments, teaching us how we should live in relation to God. The second has six commandments, teaching us what we owe our neighbor. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. That I rightly know the only true God trust him alone, and look to God for every good thing, humbly and patiently, and love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. In short, that I renounce all created things, rather than go against God's will in any way. What is idolatry? 
Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. People of God, why the law? Why do we come to the law and have the law and do it every year and read it every week? Why the law? Truth be told, in in many of our hearts, there might be a sort of sinking feeling when you come to this, this portion of the catechism. I'm not legitimizing that idea, but it's in our hearts perhaps at times, oh, we're entering the section on the law. It's, it's an explanation of the law. Why, but why do we do that? I hope that as we go through it in this year, as we go through the, the Heidelberg Catechism's treatment of the law and what what's especially Scripture has to say, that won't be our, our response, that won't be our thought, that uh, we're at the law again and I'd rather not be. I'd rather be dealing with other portions that maybe would offer me comfort instead of telling me this is how you are to live. What I hope we would see through this is a great appreciation for the law, what it means, why we have it, the blessing that it is. Why do we have the law? Why do we go through it so much? We come to this Lord's Day and and this treatment of it, and in one sense, we've gone through 33 Lord's Days that, in varying degrees, have seemed to say the law doesn't matter. Not truly, but what it's been seeming to say is, is for all purposes, as far as salvation is concerned, don't look to the law. And it's true. The Catechism has been making that point repeatedly, that through the law there is no salvation for you. Through the keeping of the law you will not save yourself. And that's true. But as we come to the law here, now we, we sort of change our focus and say, it, this isn't the negative understanding of the law. This is the law as rightly interpreted and, and as we should take it and live it. This is the good of the law. This is what we desire about the law. You see, depending on how you're thinking of the law, you'll, you'll take away a different meaning, a different, different purpose for it. The law as a means of salvation is indeed useless to us. The only way that the Bible actually truly speaks negatively of the law, and it does so, is only as a means for a fallen man to save himself, because it's an illegitimate means of escape. You can't do enough. You can't, you can't be perfect enough. The law will only judge you. And so, as a means of salvation, the law doesn't work. And as a judge, Scripture pronounces it as a harsh judge, a strict judge, a judge that's unyielding, that before we'll only find ourselves condemned under the law. And that's rightly interpreting what the law is. The law is not where we go for grace. The law is not where we go for mercy. There we see the strict command of God, and there we see the punishment of sin, full stop. That's it. That's what comes in the law when we think of it in that way. But the law as a guide, well, as a guide for our life, it shows what's pleasing to God. Surely we would desire that. As revelation from God, the law shows us the very character and nature of God, and we desire that as well. To just see some of the substance of who our God is and his heart and his attributes and his being. And, and you might ask yourself, well, God is good. We, we proclaim that. But what is goodness? What does goodness mean to say that God is good? Well, without the law, we wouldn't know that in its fullness. We wouldn't know what the Lord finds as utterly reprehensible and and turns away from. 
You see, we see the character of God as displayed in the law. As a rule to live by, the law brings us blessing. In the past, I've spoken of the law like it's a cheat code to life. In one sense, it kind of is. It kind of is in in the game, that, that thing that if you know this code, if you know this trick, it makes the game so much more easy. Well, the law in that sense as a rule to live by, the, the Lord often, and we know this from wisdom literature, attaches to obedience to the law itself great blessing. Great amount of reward to, to diligently follow the law of God, to, to seek it in wisdom, to seek wisdom literature and how the law is, law is represented there and applied. Great blessing through being a lawyer in the law of God. Great wisdom that can come from it. And as a standard of holiness, it allows us to condemn and to know that which is evil. What a blessing in this world. Those who are tossed without any understanding of what is good, what is right, what is holy, they're cut adrift. You see, the law is in many, many respects a blessing to us, even more so and especially now of where we stand in Christ. Because what's removed is that judgment of the law. The law we we no longer see in a negative sense. We no longer see it as condemning us. The law for a true believer is only that which he seeks and desires to obey and live and even be blessed by as he seeks in gratitude to the Lord to please him. In this way, we can echo what the psalm psalm we sang, Psalm 119, says about the law. Just think of this, and and think of that spirit we can sometimes have. Oh, the law again. We don't like that, maybe. But but, but how does the psalm describe it? Psalm 119, 24. The psalmist says, Your testimonies are my delight. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Psalm 119.92, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. This, this idea of the law as a blessing, that's the way we really should see it. And as the psalmist says, and if you caught it, that it would be our delight, a desire of ours, Too often we associate passions and delight with what's bad. It's like we have to always be fighting against what our delights are in. It's 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 delights. It's and we're fighting against then greed and sexual sin and addictions and these various things. And we think to ourselves, those are our pleasures, and all pleasure is to be cut off, and those certainly should be. But we do have pleasure and should have pleasure in the things of God and the law of God, and we can truly be delighted in what we see in the law of God. And when we see it lived out in our own life, when we see it lived out in others, that it would be our delight. And I want to pick up on that just a little bit, that the law is our delight. When something is your delight, you spend a lot of time seeking it. You spend a lot of time trying to understand it. You try to become experts in it. 
This is true of anything we have. This is true of the jobs we have, our, our hobbies and the things that entertain us. When it is a delight of ours, we know it. When your delight might be baking or cooking, you, you understand it, you do it well, you know what tastes and flavors and spices complement each other. You've done work to know what it is. You've done practice as you've gotten better with it. And your, your, bakery, your baking is, is fluffy when it needs to be. It's, it's dense when it should be. It, 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 it represents and gives what truly shows this is their delight, this is their passion. We, we see that. You'd be surprised at, at how much enjoyment a woodworker or carpenter might get through well-executed joinery, something that someone else would say, that's just boring, but, but for someone else, it's a delight. Look how, look how that fits together. What skill that went into it. Why am I speaking of that? Because when the law is our delight, we search it and know it, and it pleases us. And just like a cook, you know, you might watch these cooking shows, and when culinary experts are judging them, they might say, oh, this is a great dish, but probably could use a little brightening up. Maybe it needed a little acid, a little lemon to balance it out. I would never know that. I just like eating good food. I don't know what goes into good food, but those who studied it do. Now, if I could use that example, that illustration, should we not, as God's people, be those culinary experts? In the keeping of the law and the delight of the law of God to know, you know, in this instance, the, the wisest course of action, what would best please the Lord, what would best love neighbors to do this. And it's not the bare minimum of law keeping. It's not that we're just doing just enough to, to pacify our consciences. It's, it's that delight that in it we see who God is, and in it we see our faith reflected. Another point I want to add, if the law is our delight, I want you to think of this point then, if the law is your delight, then Christ is our delight. If the law is your delight, then Christ is your delight. Let me use an illustration. If your delight is in a certain field, you want to watch the expert of that field. If your, if your passion or one of your passions, as we're in a sermon on idolatry, it can't be the passion, but if one of your interests is sports or something, you want to watch he who does that sport the best. You want to watch the best player. If you're a musician, you want to see the best musician. You want to see it succeed because you, you appreciate all that it is. And so if the law is our delight, the holiness of God is our delight, and seeing his will so perfectly and wisely done, then Christ is our delight. He's that one we look to as that expert who, who navigated it all perfectly, who lived it out well. And, and so our delight is, is not just in simple commands, it's in who God is, it's in its display and who Christ is and our desire to do the same, to be those experts. It's our passion, it's our desire. In it we see the unique character of God. Now to properly understand and interpret God's law, I want to give us principles Principles to use when approaching the law. And this is of all the law. We haven't got to the first commandment yet, just when we interpret the law of God. And so what I would say, this is part of that training we need to go through. If it's going to be our delight, and if we're going to know it, we need instruction. We need to seek how to, how to apply it in wisdom. So taking this from other resources, I want to give six principles to properly interpret the law. First is context. Context. Interpret every commandment according to the content 
and context of the Bible. The Scripture interprets Scripture. We, we obey and we understand God's law and apply it correctly when we understand the context and all of God's Word. So we understand the Bible and interpret it with the Bible. And if we don't approach the law that way, we will be very confused. We will fall into errors. We need to interpret the law in context. Second, internal and external internal and external. This principle is that the law to be properly kept and obeyed has to be internal and external. It can't just be in the the actions performed. That's external. It also must be in the heart and your desires. You can't have one without the other. If you only have an external action that appears to obey the law, but your heart's not in it, you haven't kept it. And the opposite is true. If if, if internally your desire is, I want to keep the law, but then you go out and and violate the command of God, you haven't kept it. It's internal and external. It takes our whole being, in other words, to properly and truly keep the law, our heart as well as our actions. Third, the negative and positive application. The negative and positive application. When a law says, thou shalt not, it's only giving half the picture, and that's to be understood There's a negative there, a command that you won't do something, that you won't have other gods, that you won't dishonor God, you won't dishonor your parents. It's the negative. But we have to understand there's the positive. The positive being having no other gods means you have the one God. You serve him. Not committing murder doesn't just stop there, that you don't run at each other with knives all the time trying to kill each other and think, I've kept it because I haven't done that. No, now you're, 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 you're seeking life. You're seeking what's the best for that person. There's, there's the positive of it, the negative and the positive application. Fourth is the rule of categories. The rule of categories. Each commandment stands for a whole category of sins. The Ten Commandments are ten words, ten principles given to, to encapsulate all of what God's will is. It's a summary and so each of those commands represents a category. We can take the idea of, of of sexual sin. We take this one because Jesus even clearly applies it that way. The command, thou shalt not commit adultery, doesn't just mean that. It, it, it means as well all lust, all disordered lust and temptation in that way. It, it represents that entire category, not simply adultery. And so the rules of categories, five, what I call brother's keeper. Brother's keeper. And this is the idea we are required not only to keep the laws ourselves, but to help others keep them as much as within our power. To help see the law of God spread, to help correct and train those around us to not sit content when others would sin and fall into sin. We see this reflected in the New Testament and in the epistles and James where you're, you're trying to seek someone who's, who's falling away or Matthew 18 when someone sins or grievously or sins against you, you go and you confront them. The idea is we want even our brothers and sisters to keep the law and to keep it right. It's our heart. It's our love for them. We are in that way properly our brother's keeper, seeing, seeking the law not just in us but in all. Six, and finally, the first is the table of importance. The first is the table of importance. Catechism referenced that there's two tables of the law, the four commands that deal with how we approach and live before God, and the six that deal with man. This principle is that our duty is first and foremost to what is the first table of the law. And here's an explanation of that. Our, Our love for neighbor is subject to our love for God. So think of it in this way. If a parent tells a child to worship a false god, 
The child is bound by the first commandment rather than the fifth. The child is bound to worship first and only God himself, and so may disobey their parents, may not listen to them in that regard, because the first is of greater importance. What does Acts 5.29 say? We must obey God rather than men, and that's true of all of them. We keep the law, we, we keep it towards God, we, we weight that first table with that importance, not because the second contradicts it, but even in that application you see at times we, we will go against what our neighbor wants. We, we, we won't do what our neighbor tells us to or what our parents might because we're honoring God above man. That's the law, but what about the first commandment? This is our second point, that we are to renounce all. That we renounce all and serve only the Lord. The first commandment places God before everything else. In fact, it clearly warns us how harmful it is to walk away. The Bible gives that. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Catechism picks up on that truth and says that I not wanting to endanger my own salvation. You see how important law-keeping is. You see how important the first commandment is. What's getting at here is, is if we take any other thing in place of or along, alongside of God, we've rejected him. We've called him, we, we, we've said he's not enough. We've diminished who he is. We've diminished who Christ is. We want something else because God is deficient. That's what we must be saying. We see it in the example of Israel. They, they wanted God and the gods of the nations. They wanted, they wanted other ways of worshiping God, and so they adopted that and, and tried to do it to the one God. They were serving other gods and also, in a sense, trying to serve the one you can't. To turn to any God and, and serve them is to violate this commandment, is to show you truly don't follow God. And if we were to do that, if we were to, to place our faith in any other we endanger, we lose our very salvation. And that's what the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit uses these warnings to keep us and preserve our faith. To know that we run from that, to run from other gods, to heed this command, to run from anything or any, anyone else, and renounce all for the Lord. This means we shun all idolatry. The last sentence of question and answer 94 says it clearly, that I renounce all created things rather than go against God's will in any way. It's a beautiful description, a, a great summary of what it means to keep the first commandment. We renounce all of that. Applying this commandment, then, you see, it goes to everything. Boys and girls, it can be as light a matter, as, as small a sin in your mind as getting really upset at your brother or sister because they took that Snickers that was yours. They took that candy bar that you wanted, and so you got angry and you called them a name. Well, well, what happened? What did, what, what, what did we do there? Well, we said that we actually want to serve our own appetites, our own greed, that we're not going to love our brother or sister truly, nor are we going to serve God here because what's more important than, than God and his will is my desire for that candy. You see, it, it can be as small a matter, it's not actually small, but you know what I'm saying, it can be seemingly as insignificant as that. 
this Halloween candy that just flows around and, and keeps getting later and later and later, and then you ask yourself, is it still good? Can, can candy go bad? That's the danger that we would desire those things. It can be as seemingly insignificant as that, or it can be as, as widely applied as to the attitude in your life. Is your disposition and attitude one that's rotten? Are you truly serving the Lord, or has something else taken its place, his place? You would say, well, who serves a, a, an idol of a rotten attitude? Well, it's not the, the rotten attitude that truly is our God, but our God and our worship of that false God produces that rotten attitude. What if your God is your comfort and pleasure? What if your, your God is security in your, your bank account, your money and wealth? What if you serve a God of comfort or a God of security and the comfort's taken away? That false God we were worshiping, that we, we took a sliver of what we're supposed to be giving to God alone and we, we served this other false God. Well, what happens is because we're worshiping this false God and it's removed from us, now our disposition is rotten. Now our attitude suffers tied back into having other gods before the true God. As one resource says, idolatry is turning God's good gifts into God's substitutes. Turning God's good gifts into God's substitutes, and that's what we do. So much of what we serve isn't in and of itself wrong food and drink. They're not wrong, but serving them as our comfort, as our God, they are. Marital bliss, that union, that's not wrong, that's wonderful, but, but seeking that outside of, of what Scripture has put on it, that sure is. Taking the good things God has done, making it idols. The sheer number of false gods vying for our attention is staggering. It would put the pantheon of the gods of Greece and Rome to shame. How many gods vie for our attention, how many idols that we might seek I was listening recently to a, a video, a TV and movie reviewer. He's not a Christian, but I often find myself agreeing with what he says. He'll, he'll review movies and, and things, and most of the time he's, he's complaining about how poor it's become and, and how certain agendas are being pushed in them. So most of the time I agree. I think he's spot on in a lot of what he says, and yet he said something I found interesting in one video. He was talking about how this, this poor this poor material we're getting, this, this, these poor movies and TV shows, and, and the, the downgraded quality of them is sad. And why did he say it was sad? He said, because we use these things when we're going through difficult times. You know, when you're, when you're going through a divorce or the loss of a loved one or going through a medical issue, and he said of himself, I've gone through all these, and, and TV and, and movies was something that helped get me through. Now, we know that, you know that that's not right. And we wouldn't expect him to be giving a, a right answer. He's not a Christian. But what's scary is how close we come to that or fall into that, where we are looking for those same things, where that really is our only comfort. How do you know that you're falling into this trap of idolatry and Searching or seeking something or someone else as opposed to God. There's a couple tests that we can do. First is the test of love. The test of love, as one commentator says, when your mind is free to roam, what do you think about? When your mind is free to roam, what do you think about? How do you spend your money? What do you get excited about? 
A false god can be any good thing that we focus on to the exclusion of God. It could be a hobby or a personal interest. It could be an appetite for the finer things in life. It could be a career ambition. It could be personal health and fitness. It could even be ministry in the church. These things that can become our idols, or, or I would add to this test of love and say it this way as we began, what is your delight? What is your delight? Because if your delight is, is God, you seek the things of God. But if we have the time of day and time to think and, and free time, what are we doing? Are we showing that our delight is in the Lord? Or really that there's a whole host of idols in front of God that we'll, we'll spend far amount more time, energy, resources, money, desire on as opposed to God himself. Where are our priorities? Where's our delights? Where our love? Do we know far, far more about any other hobby than we even do about God's word? Are we those culinary experts in the law that we know, hey, you can balance this flavor out with a little bit of lemon? Are we those who, who know, you know, that the, the, a wise answer, a wise opportunity there, what will glorify God is to do X or Y? Is it our delight? Is it our love? Is God our delight and our love? That's the whole purpose of the law. To show him that love. The second test is the trust test. So the first is this delight, what you love. But what do you trust? Where do you turn in times of trouble? That, that movie reviewer I was talking to turned to an escape in entertainment, into cinema, distraction in movies. It can be anything can be an addiction in and, and for or with anything. Where, where do we turn? We're in dire straits. We're in pain. We're, we need help and comfort. What have you turned to? What's your trust? That'll force our understanding, our, our idols, right out to the surface. Where have we turned? Do you seek God constantly to be your trust? This is what it means to, to have nothing in place of God. Third and finally, and more briefly, rightly fearing. Rightly fearing. What, what does it mean to, to serve the Lord? What's the positive of this commandment? We've already been getting at it. But do we understand that keeping the, the law and what it means, keeping this first commandment, is to rightly fear? What does the first commandment require? It says in our catechism that I rightly know the only true God, trust in him alone, and look to God for every good thing, humbly and patiently, and love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. There's the positives. It's all summarized in rightly fearing. There's nothing as glorious as knowing God for who he is. There's nothing as glorious as putting in the time to know. And that's a question. Do we do that? Do we put in the time to know God? Are we invested in the relationship we have with him? The more we invest, the more we are blessed. The more we dig into him, the greater and more glorious the God we serve is to us. Not because we're making him that way, but because we are knowing him deeper and would cause us to put to death all other things. That's the highest form of life, is knowing God. It's what God's Word says. Jesus, in John 17, verse 3, says in his high priestly prayer, And this is eternal life, 
that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's true life, knowing God. All of this, though, comes in Christ himself. I said earlier, if we love the law, we will love Christ because he's the one who kept it. But I want to add more to that. It's not just we love Christ because he's excelled at what we desire, but that his excelling in the law of God is the very foundation upon which we do know God. This is the very reason that we can have no other gods but our true God and the very reason we don't want any other gods but the true God. To rightly know God means, as God has revealed himself in Christ, it means that any any revelation of God that is deficient in Christ, that does not put Christ forward, that takes Christ out of the picture, is a false God. That's why Jews who would claim to be the people of God are not. They're not following the true God. They they are worshiping a God that's outside of Christ. They've rejected Christ, who's the manifestation of God himself. His Son, only, we only know God as revealed in Christ. Who is Christ? What does John 1, 1 tell us? The Word. Christ is the Word of God. He reveals God. We know our, our Father. We know the Spirit. We know Jesus. He reveals it. The Holy Spirit works it. The Word of God himself. We also see the beauty of Christ in the law and in this commandment when we know we failed and broken it in so many ways. We failed with every Snickers opportunity we had. We failed in every rotten, rotten attitude opportunity we've had. We've broken it in every way. Our hearts are rightly called idol factories. We are constantly looking for entertainments, distractions, addictions, and comforts to give us only what God can. We break it, and we cannot keep it. If we love and delight in the law, what we are really delighting in is is Christ, is keeping it on our behalf. The only way to fulfill the law now is in our gratitude for what he's done. And, And that's also why when we love the law, we love Christ, because he's enabled us to delight in it. He's enabled us to become experts in it. He's enabled us to seek it, to be able to obey He's enabled God the Father to give great gifts to us. Those are the good things we do. They're gracious gifts. And it's Jesus who's done it. It's God who works it in us. It's so that we can, in part, not perfectly, but in part, keep this commandment now. And it's why we will keep it perfectly in the new heavens and new earth, because of what Christ has done. As deep as the revelation of This commandment is as deep as what the command in Exodus shows. It's far deeper, far greater to see it in Christ. That's who, what the law is pointing to in us. The only thing that can tear our hearts away from all other affections, all other interests, is love for the true God as we've received it through Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we walk away from this commandment, I pray that we would understand that it is truly our delight. And that we would see not only the the negative side of what we cannot do, of, of renouncing all but the pleasure to know only God, because how does that commandment begin? You are the people I took from Egypt. 
You're the people I saved. We, we desire to do it because God has taken us. He's chosen us. That's our desire, and that's why we obey. That's why we come to the law and why we do it every week. That's why we, we preach through it so regularly, so that we would be greatly pleasing to God, not only in our heart and our desire, in action as well. Amen. Let's pray. Great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, your law is perfect. Your law is wondrous to behold as it displays your very character, as well as it leads us straight to Christ. There is no mercy and grace in the law. We find that in Christ, but the law is a tool to direct us to what truly is the mercy of God. We may not find salvation there, but now on this side of faith and, and who we are in Christ, we find in the law our our desire and delight because you are our delight and we seek to please you and only follow you thank you lord for those reminders and holy spirit for preserving our faith by constantly dashing to pieces the the idols that our hearts make and thank you lord jesus for even the good works that you work in us that you've gifted to us by grace we praise your name